You're listening to Zen Sandwich, a podcast for the independent mind and anyone who embraces life despite its absurdities. Join former attorney and professor turned Japanese papermaker Mark Reed each week as he talks with creative, inspiring, and influential people, or as he shares his own research to help make your world a little better today than it was yesterday. Hey, here we are. My guest today is Michelle Onsu. Uh, she has an interesting personal story, which it actually continues to evolve. It's still interesting today. Uh, more on that later. But she's also an NLP coach. Uh, that's neuro-linguistic programming. Uh, and we'll find out more about that as well. As a brief introduction to the interesting backstory, Michelle was a professional musician she went from that to working in catering then to having a 16-year career in the air force followed by being a project manager and finally a self-employed consultant and coach though i suspect you are about to hear michelle's bubbly personality and her voice she has not been immune to tough times in that history as we'll find out and to the stigmatized word that so many people are still scared to talk about these days, depression. I don't know why it's stigmatized, because it happens to the very best and brightest and bubbly of people. With that, Michelle Onsuk, she joins me now from, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it. I tried, but my French is terrible. La de, de Strauss. <laughs> it's near Marseille, France. I'm going to have her. That's the first question. How do we pronounce where she lives? But she's, uh, she's joining me now from France. Bonjour. Welcome, Michelle. Bonjour, Mark. <laughs> How do you it's pronounce right. where you live? Not in French. La distrus. <laughs> La distrus. Okay. I, I, I was telling Michelle before we got on air, like, I, look, I speak Japanese, but I cannot speak French. I can't. <laughs> Bonjour and croissant are like, that's it. That's it for me. That's all I got. <laughs> well, so, I can't speak any Japanese, so there you go. Well, you don't have to, that's the thing, <laughs> unless you're in Japan, but French has spoken, in fact, I th correct me if I'm wrong, but the French kind of, uh, are, I don't want to say bitter, but like at one point in time in world history, French was supposed to be the lingua franca. That was supposed to be like the world language. And then British imperialism, wow, this is already going in a different direction than I planned. Oh, but anyway. True, because my husband and I kind of like argue all the time as to who's pinched whose words. So uh -huh. like I would say, well, you still say weekend in in French. Could you not find your own word for weekend? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he will come back with something that he'll say many many uh, forms, original forms of the of the English words are actually French. So uh -huh. there we go. Well, we have a lot to cover, so we won't go into linguistics go, today. <laughs> <laughs> but I, so I want to dive right in uh and it's it's kind of tough without being too abrupt but it's certainly one aspect i want to talk to you about and that is the topic of suicide you see uh very recently uh and you don't know this yet but I, about a week ago um an old friend of mine i mean literally this is about a week or less than 10 days ago an old friend of mine from high school a good friend uh who was a husband and father he committed suicide and it floored me uh, it's floored everyone that knew him. And um, so I want to start there with you. 
because your mother committed suicide. So one, first, can you describe what led up to that? Um, I know that throughout the course of your life, because I know I've done my research, I know that throughout the course of your life, threats had been made. So from my understanding, there was a bit of an aura of like the boy who cried wolf with your mom, right? Well, why did she do what she did when she finally went through with it? Um, well, firstly, sorry, Mark, because I, I wasn't aware of that at all. And um, I think if it happens to anyone close to you, then the ripple effect of that shock is felt for a very long time. Um, so my mum, my mum's diabetic. <clears throat> she was fixated on dying of some horrible disease associated with diabetes. On top of that, I think she had lived a very unfruitful life. Um, hadn't really done what she wanted to do, partly because of diabetes, partly I suspect because she felt trapped in a, in a life that she didn't really want to be in. And I think herself, I've got nothing to prove it, but I heavily suspect that she suffered from postnatal depression when she had me. So she gave birth to me, I think six months later, her own mother died. Um, she had an inability to connect with me on an emotional level. So I think she was very closed and um, while she could be an emotional person, she kept everything inside. So she wasn't happy in marriage. Oh, sorry, Mark. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to cut in, but I do have a curious question here based on something you said. I, I don't know much about, I don't know much about a post um Pardon? I, uh, the, well, the depression that happens when a woman has a baby, I, yes. I know that it exists. I don't even know you, yeah. what you call it. See, I'm lacking the word there, but uh, I, I don't know much about it. I, I guess I had always assumed that even though, even if that happens, it's a temporary thing, but is it something that can last? I mean, your mother didn't commit suicide until you were no, an adult. No, until I was 35. But right. I think the, so I think the way she had gone into the marriage, <clears throat> so they, my mum and dad met and married after six months, um, was quite quick. Mm. And God, even nowadays, Mark, you can't prepare yourself for living with somebody else when you've, and in, these, in, in that day and age, you went from the home with your parents to suddenly being married. And the whole world of sex and everything was completely different, I think, in, in, that, in that generation. And I think my mom very much saw it as her duty. I can't really say she enjoyed it. Um, and I think there and discussions with my with my dad specifically were af actually after I was born, there was no sex mm. in the marriage at all. So I think there is a layering effect of maybe her upbringing was quite sheltered, going into a, a marriage that she thought was going to be very happy. I think it was only a, a year um, later that she had me. So that again was quite quick, probably a lack of preparation, because how do you prepare for that? I mean, there are so much more things available to us nowadays that enable you to prepare for parenthood, but nothing really then. And she wasn't very communicative. So I think if you, if you have depression, it's not something you immediately recognize because there's a whole range of emotions going on for women once they've given birth. Hers was fairly traumatic. I think she had a cesarean um, and 
she was a very very private person you know genitals were called private parts uh, right. it, was, it was that era so very uncomfortable with being seen by doctors um and she had some physical issues afterwards which i think my dad had suggested she went back to to see if she could resolve and she refused she wasn't going to be seen by doctors and i think the malaise and the disconnection probably wedded itself in at an early stage and because look now that there, there was no social media there was nothing right. to help people she was an only child she hadn't got brothers or sisters to ask people she hadn't really got many close friends and i think That's and i'm an guessing issue, yeah. but i i think she kind of was just left to get through it by herself wow. and do didn't you re- really get through it do you remember the earliest time of like her ever suggesting that she was going to do that? Do you ever remember like a first like time that she suggested? I mean, and it may have happened even before you were cognizant of it, but that it, do you remember the first time you're like, did my mom just sort of threaten that she's going to commit suicide? Like, do you remember, do you have a moment where you sort of became remember it in my teens yeah. prior to that, it was less demonstrating it or saying it. And it was more disappearing from the house for, long periods at a time I don't mean days but you know hours where mm-hmm. she doesn't drive she'd go off on a bike uh, we didn't have phones so nobody would know where she was but she would always come back did she have other was, other problems like addiction or anything nope nothing wow okay but she would disappear for days or not days yeah, though, hours. It would normally be it would normally be after an argument with my dad she would disappear off yeah. I would then kind of be quite fearful thinking, where's she gone? Is she coming back? Uh, mm. It's quite bizarre because as a kid, you don't actually ask. You're just asking your own Right. Person. You just accept um, what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And then when she came back, it was like, Phew. but that was a cyclical event over many, many years. And eventually, I think she got to a stage. It was It was interesting because I have a sneaky suspicion that she planned it. The ultimate act, I think. What can can I ask how she did it? Um, she took an overdose of insulin. Okay. And she'd always said she is again, it's interesting. She said that she had an easy way out. Hmm. She knew so she she knew that she could she do knew that. That if she took an overdose of insulin, that it would be an easy way out for her. She would just fall asleep and that would be it. And it was One, constant kind of threat in the background that she could do that. So yeah, that's what I alluded to before. Insulin to survive is not something that you could take away from her, really. But she knew about it. Yeah, the, um, I'm sure you know uh, uh, more about statistics than I do because you have such a close uh, attachment to the to happening to you. But I, I used to teach a, a class called Death and Dying at Florida State University, and um, it was a religious studies class so that we didn't focus a whole lot on this. But I know this one statistic that, at least in the United States, men attempt suicide at, uh, I'm sorry, women attempt suicide at twice the rate that men do, but men are twice as successful at it. Uh, So when they do it, they do it, you know, like when a guy does it, you know, he grabs a gun or something, you know, it's the U.S., there's lots of guns. And, uh, but, uh, but when, but anyway, my point is, it sounds like your mom knew how to do it. And when she decided to do it, she wasn't messing yeah. around. She wasn't messing yeah. around. She was going for it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's tough. And I think, what- um, and, and I remember because I was seven months pregnant and I'd gone home for a weekend for 
Well, I don't know why I thought I might get some pampering, but I thought I would get some pampering, being a bit, bit pregnant and kind of like about to drop. So I kind of thought, you know, I drove all the way from Marin, which was an RAF base about five hours from my house. Um, got home. And it, it just felt uncomfortable. And uh, looking back, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? My yeah. mum just didn't seem right. She seemed quite manic mm-hmm. and uh, very kind of like, uh, well, she was always busy doing housework and doing something, but she just seemed extra busy. And she was quite annoyed because um, my aunt had had a brain uh, tumor and she'd had an operation. And so it's my dad's sister. And she was moaning because she said, well, your dad's going to uh, to uh, ask her to come and live with us. And we can't have her living here. I mean, she smokes. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm sure smoking is probably not the first thing that's going to be on her brain after an operation. But um, has he actually said that she's going to move in? Well, no, but uh, it's obvious. Mm-hmm. Then the conversation started to go into, um, well, you've no idea what it's like living here with your father. At which point I said, well, actually, I do. That's why I left when I was 16. Um, And I got irritated. And literally, and this is the, I haven't, I haven't beaten myself up over this because, again, I think it it was a choice and I couldn't prevent it. I think if I'd prevented it this time, she would have been successful another time. But I said, you know, if, um, if you're that unhappy, do something about it. And those were, those were like pretty much your last words to her, right? Yeah. 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 I, I know. Uh, uh, I, I want to transition here in a second to, to other topics, but uh, just briefly, were there any signs? I mean, you kind of touched on a little bit here but with the manic behavior beforehand, but were there other signs of the reality that she was actually going to finally go through with it this time, as opposed to the other times where there had been idle threats? Now that you look back, do you see like, oh, that was a that was a red flag. She was actually get she was really getting serious about it this time. The only the only thing that made me think at the time was she was very fixated on knitting two cardigans for um, the baby. <clears throat> and bearing in mind we're in November, and she was insisting that she needed to finish them. And I said, but you've got till January there's no need to kind of worry about it now no 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 I must finish them she said and she she did finish them I think she even must have finished that evening then you you think there's some premeditation there that she she didn't just do it suddenly she was she was she was planning it out I think she'd been planning it for years I think this was the thing that kind of like tipped her over the edge and the only thing that I well I I kind of regret it now because the next day I said to my dad, there's something off that I'm wondering whether mum is actually suffering from depression. Mm-hmm. And so when she comes back, because I just thought it was the, the usual flounce off for six to eight hours or 12 hours or whatever, and then return when she comes back, I think we must try and get her to see a doctor. Mm. Uh, and of course we never got that opportunity. And mm-hmm. I think what it proved to me and of course, I knew nothing about depression at that stage, really, other than the word and being aware of it. But um, from a personal context, I didn't understand how that would feel. Yeah. And I hadn't done NLP, so I hadn't been able to do that whole perceptual positioning thing of putting myself in her shoes and trying to open her up or get her help. And, and so I think that, that was a real eye-opener for me, that you can be closest to people 
you know, family, friends, whatever, and you won't have any indication at all. Yeah. I, uh, I've thought about that myself. Like, and people I talk to you, you can't, you can't always see it or, or it's only clear in retrospect. Like you can't yeah. see it while it's happening. Well, let's talk. And if they're pri- well, I was going to say, Mark, if they're very private and I, I listen to, um, or watch the documentary, our silent emergency, uh, Roland Keating, is it? And he was talking about his best friend who he'd phoned up his mum to have a conversation. She said, how are you? And he said, I'm fine. And shortly after that, tried to commit suicide. And I'm fine tends to be the stock answer that people give because they're so private. They don't want to say what, what's really going on. Well, I, and uh, the, the friend of mine that I talked about at the beginning of this, that uh, no one, no one had a clue. No yeah. one, not even his family. No one had yeah. a clue that he was going through whatever he's going through, whatever he's struggling with, whatever was the cause for him doing what he did no one and he's the last guy on earth i would have even you know there was no way to predict that so yeah i I do because of our time i I do want to spend some time talking about nlp and you just mentioned it uh is is this what eventually is this event what eventually led you to studying and finding out about neuro-linguistic programming and in your response to that question please describe nlp to the to the uh listener who has no idea what that is Okay, so um, no, that wasn't the event that sparked it, although you would think it was going to be. Um, But actually what sparked it was I had depression myself. So I guess because of everything that I'd gone through and then building up to that suicide and then I got divorced um, and I found myself with, well, it was my choice to get divorced, Hey, so I I can't complain, but it was, um, I found myself with two kids aged three and five uh, I left the Air Force, I was about to leave the Air Force and um, moved to Bristol to find a new job. Got a new job with a, a fantastic consultancy. Um, but because of the kind of person that I was, I felt a need to prove myself, um, particularly because I was working in an environment where I was the only non engineer as a project manager. And I felt you know, that these people had done engineering degrees and that I had to go, you know, the extra mile to kind of prove myself. And nobody said that to me. Eh? It was self-inflicted, um, <laughs> or, you know, in, in terms of the way that I operated. So I, yeah. I worked during the day um, I, I went home to to be with my kids. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like going from a full-time job to another full-time job. And then when they went to bed, um, I would start working again. Uh, because uh, I would just feel that that's what I needed to do to prove my kind of like capabilities. Well, I know that you have an upbringing of, of hard work is a, a, is a, an ethic that you grew up with, yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was working since I was 14. So for me, it was always, you've got to work hard to play hard. You've got to work hard to get your money. And, you know, there's no time for laziness. Uh, there's no such thing as saying no. So all those kind of, predetermined patterns if you like were almost a bit of a recipe for disaster because I didn't know any other way to operate so um I think my kids were well it was about 2011 2012 it was Christmas my dad had died the previous January and I'd had a rather interesting time dealing with his estate and my stepmother and got to the end of the year and and actually 
this is this is why I'm kind of very thoughtful about my mum. I had no idea I had depression. I just thought life was a little bit shit. Really. Right. Sat there thinking that every day is a bit meh. I trudge through the day. I do my work. I come home. You know, play with the kids, bath the kids, uh, feed the kids, whatever. And then uh, I got to a Christmas, and I, I, I had a partner, and I, I got to Christmas, and my kids had said to me, "Do you do you want to? Because um, we won't be with you because we'll be with our dad over your birthday. Can we go for a dog walk and uh, go to the place where they let dogs in for so we can have lunch together and and we can pretend it's your birthday?" I said, "Yeah, it's cool." <laughs> so we got up, we got in the car. Uh, cutting long story short calls two little kids in the back of the car fighting away just getting on my nerves and then I'm halfway down the motorway and I suddenly realized they've left their coats behind and the sky looked absolutely ominous as in it's going to hurl down any minute right. and I said have you got your coats and they said no <clears throat> at which point they started fighting again and I'd already said if you start fighting I'm just going to turn the car around and go back home so without saying a word I came off at the next junction like literally tears streaming down my face drove home, complete silence. I've never heard the kids so quiet, actually, because they were just like, what the hell's going on? Yeah, they were shocked. Yeah. And my partner's kind of giving me the look from the corner of his eye going, what are you doing? And I went in the house and I said, right, kids, you just go upstairs. And I said to my partner, I don't want you here. You can also go because I just want to be by myself. I don't want anything. So he left. The kids, uh, must've been a horrible 24 hours for the kids actually, because there was literally silence. Um, I, I'd served them their supper and I just went and sat somewhere else. They went to their dad's the next day and I literally sat on my sofa, I think, for about three, three days. And it wasn't what I imagined depression to be. I imagined depression to be some huge event where you're gnashing and wailing your teeth and, you know, you, you can't get out of bed in the morning. But I was just like, look, I've been going to work every day, so there can't be anything wrong with me. And actually, it was one of my friends who suffered from depression who just very gently messaged me and she was asking me how I was. And she said, do you think you might be suffering from depression? Mm. And I, I guess I was at a, such a low stage. I wasn't going to be defensive. And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, have a look on the NHS website and see if you can recognize the symptoms. And I think I had, apart from <laughs> wanting to commit suicide, I had <laughs> nearly all of them. And at which point I thought, Mm, okay I need to I need to see the doctor mm. um, now what happened then was I stuck my hand out and, and took the medication they gave me so I was on Prozac for a year um, that was a for me I can only speak for me but that was a fantastic support mechanism whilst I did therapy I don't right. necessarily believe it's a cure-all by itself but it certainly enabled me to get to a place where I could function a bit better um, I could tell. Yeah, my, 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 yeah. My thoughts on uh, Prozac, uh, because I actually, and I, I actually don't confess much of my personal experiences on this program when I interview people, because I'm more interested in their stories. I actually was prescribed Prozac for uh, it was probably about three or four months, and uh, and I, I look at it as a stepping stone. I, I, I look at it as a, benef a benefit, a beneficial. Um, thing that helped me at a brief period of time in my life when I needed some help um yeah. sometimes you can't always get that from everything else and therapy takes a long time mm -hmm. and uh, one of my friends who was a nurse put it into context for me <clears throat> because I, I kid you not when I took the first pill 
I thought it was going to be like a sign over my head going, Michelle's on Prozac, yeah. <laughs> you know, world, have a look. And I was just like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. So I don't um, even do anything. It's not that. like a, that's the thing that people, I just do want to make this clear for people who have no idea. It, it is not like a, a, a narcotic, like there's no, like, you don't take one Prozac and like, woo, I'm happy. I mean, yeah, it took, like a, it took like a week for me to even notice a kind of effect. And then, you know, I felt a little better, but it's not a, it's not a it's buzz. Not a yeah. It's not no, a buzz drug. Not you don't you get high on. No. Yeah. Nobody. So I, know, I noticed. Yeah. Uh, so my friend said to me, look, don't worry about it. Kind of one in three people are on some kind of antidepressant and actually you won't notice until about six weeks in which, so get past the nausea bit and the, the uncomfortable bit and it'll start feeling better around six weeks. I noticed I started humming to tunes in the car, which considering you know, as you said at the beginning, I used to be a musician. I was always humming to something. I was just like, oh, actually, I haven't done that for quite yeah. a long time. Um, and I, I found a counsellor through work. Um, so I, I saw them practically every week for 52 weeks. Mm. <laughs> it was a long, long haul. And I think I probably cried a, a boatload of tears through my sessions. But what was interesting for me was towards the end, I was thinking, ah, do you know what? I can hear that same story. Like mm. I can, I can repeat the story to myself 10 times, but the story isn't changing. Right. So I can't change the past. I can't change what's happened. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to change how I think going forward so that I don't fall into this trap again. Nice. That's good. Um, <clears throat> and so I think, my work ethic actually stood me in good stead because I worked bloody hard. I, w yeah. I was not going to be defeated by it. I was not right. going to be kind of like sitting there. Because at one stage I thought, my God, what if this is it? What if I'm actually depressed for forever now? What if, 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 if this is as good as it gets? <laughs> um, <clears throat> and uh, But good for you. You didn't settle for that. No, I didn't settle for that. I was just like, no, there's got to be an answer. So I did therapy for a year <clears throat> and quite by accident, I went to a dinner um, uh, with some, I can, I can only say acquaintances, and I was sat next to somebody and she was describing what she did and she was describing NLP coaching. And, and I was just like, what on earth is that? I've never heard of it. And she said, well, she said, it's a... The closest I can probably get you to is hypnotherapy, but without putting you in a trance-like state. And she said it, it deals with the unconscious. So if you've got patterns that you want to undo, then that can be quite effective. And I was quite curious. <clears throat> so I said to her, well, sign me up. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> yeah. Why not? You know, what have I got to lose? Right, it's right. Something that I can try. And if it doesn't work, it's not going to kill me, right? So I kid you not, Mark. I went for four sessions and it was completely transformational, completely mm. life-changing. I went back to my counsellor at the very end and um, she said, she actually said, I'm really chuffed with you. She said, because you haven't, you haven't settled for just keeping going in the same way. She said, you tried lots of different things to, to try and move forward. And she said, and, and I, I think you've done it. Um, as we well as we wrap up because we're we're running a little bit out of time but um uh, you know, how would you characterize nlp for the for the listener who is not familiar how would you just define it and i also want you to address like there are critics and i know that you're aware of that of nlp they call it a pseudoscience 
Uh, so no. define it, describe it, and then address, you know, the criticism of it. God, no pressure then, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, um, yeah, I was trying to cram it all in and I shouldn't do yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, no. it, <laughs> so uh, it started off with Richard Bandler and, and his partner, John Grindler. They were, they, they started it in the 1970s, essentially. And they, they noticed that there were particular um, therapists, practitioners, that were extremely successful in their success rate. And they kind of wanted to know why that was the case. So they studied them and they, out of studying them, to cut long story short, they came up with a series of techniques and tools that could be used that seemed to elicit a favorable and positive response in individuals. So it tended to be curious, opening, questioning, um, getting the person to think on a subconscious level rather than a conscious level, not directing in terms of coaching, but just um, looking for clues for the individual in terms of their body language or the way they spoke or language that they used. And they put these, these together in a series of tools and basically called it NLP. Mm. Um, I'm sad that it doesn't get the credence it deserves because mm. like, yeah, I sound a bit wacky-backy when I go, woohoo, four sessions and I'm cured. But um, I, I would say... Well, let well, me let me give you a little boost here because I, I'm familiar with NLP. But, uh, I, I think I mentioned this. Uh, I read a Tony Robbins book more than 20 years ago that mentioned it. And I looked into it. And I, I, I'm an advocate as well. I don't know as much about it as you do. But I'm not one of the critics. So I, I've got you on the program because... You know, I think there is, I think there is something to it. So go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I there's kind of so much to say about it and how I feel about it. But for, for me personally, it was transformational. So I no longer thought like the old Michelle. I was still me, mm-hmm. but I could not think in the same ways. That's good. And 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 it was all because the I agree. I'm a very visual person. So when uh, my coach Nikki was working with me, she would be working with me on a very visual level and I'd be creating images. So if there was something that I wanted to get rid of, we would smash it or, you know, shoot it or set fire to it or something. But it was in my imagination because sometimes your your, your brain can't separate out what's in imaginary and what's real, right? So right. It, it thinks it's doing it. Um, and I felt so light afterwards. Now, what I don't know is if I'd had the NLP at the start, before I'd had all the counselling and peeled off the onion layers, would it have been as successful? I don't know. Hmm. But I can I can tell you that I've had people who haven't gone through the journey that I have and have had NLP and have had equal successes and transformations. So it is entirely possible, I think. But that's why I kind of always advocate there is not a one size fits all. What's worked for me won't necessarily work for someone else. I agree with I that. I think it's disappointing that something like CBT gets loads of money for research and, and funding um, to determine its efficacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and CBT has its place. It works for some people. But again, I've, I've coached people who've had CBT and it hasn't worked for them. And NLP has been transformational. Mm. I think what I'd like to see is because I, I don't diss CBT, I don't diss other forms of psychotherapy or hypnotherapy or, or any kind of therapy, because mm. I think each has its own part to play and in its place. But I think what would be nice is if we could give it some credence and equal weight and consideration in the fact that there are a 
large proportion of people who do seem to benefit from it. Yeah, I, I, I can concur. I can agree with that. Um, well, what else do you have going on these days? You, you, you fin- you're finishing up a book, correct? Yeah. When, so that when... was that was well that was sparked by the NRP thing taught me that you don't know what you don't know. You know, I had <laughs> Well, that's true. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the title of the book is called The Silent Child in Me because everything that had happened to me as a child was extremely formative in how I presented myself in the world as an adult. So how I worked, how I went into relationships, mm. how I um was perhaps defensive with other people and and very protective of me and didn't open myself up enough to let people in properly. None of that was obvious to me until I'd had my breakdown, gone through that process and then had that immense self-reflection. It was just like, blimey, so that's who I was. And and I think... uh, Blimey is my favorite. It's my favorite British word, by the way. Go on. And that, and that sparked the the kind of download, if you like, for the book in, in as much as, gosh, there must be loads of other people who've either going through a similar experience of depression or whatever, and have had difficult upbringings, because I'm not saying that mine was worse than anybody else's, but it, it was pretty tough. Mm. Um, and uh, But how we can't expect those things to not have an effect on us in some shape or form. I'm not saying it's all negative. There are some positive things that we can get out of it. But where it is negative, it's not particularly useful for us, but we're not alive to the impact that it's had on us. So we just show up in the world and we just act as we know. But NLP can change that. Well, I will, uh, in the notes, I'll put some links into how people can get in touch with you if they're interested in, in coaching or learning more about NLP, if that's okay. Yeah, no, that's fine. Thank you, Mark. Well, that's it, folks. Thank, thanks for listening. The show continues to grow through listener support. I hope to always be ad-free if I can, but that's only through your support. Uh, go to patreon.com slash sandwich. Pitch in three bucks if you got it. Uh, you won't miss it, and it'll be going to a good cause, spreading some calm and kindness and, um, you know, some more Zen Sandwich to the world. When you do sign up, I will send you a handmade postcard. That's a postcard made on traditional Japanese paper called washi. That's what my wife and I do here. I'll send you a postcard to wherever you are in the world. Michelle, I'd, I'd like to send you one as a thank you for coming on the program. Uh, if that's cool with you, I'll get your address off air. Oh, it's lovely. Thank you. Yes. And I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it's been a blast. I knew, you know what? I didn't get to half my questions because I knew you'd be so interesting. <laughs> you'd feel it. That's true. <laughs> we could talk all day. I know. <laughs> we might have to have a part two. Uh, so... <laughs> I really appreciate you. you coming on. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you very much, Mark. Bye.